Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Lena Vercherie, one of the hosts of this channel, and today I am thrilled to be speaking with Eric Huntington, author of Creating the Universe, Depictions of the Cosmos and Himalayan Buddhism, published in 2018 by University of Washington Press. This is a lushly illustrated, gorgeous volume in which the copious photographs and diagrams are as integral to the argument as the written prose. In fact, one of the author's main goals in this book is to train us to think beyond just the text and the textual and enter into the wider world of Buddhist art, material culture, architecture, archaeology, and ritual practice. The main topic of this book is Buddhist cosmology, that's to say the various ways in which Buddhists have imagined and represented the cosmos over the last nearly 2,000 years of Buddhist history in Tibet, India, and Nepal. These depictions of the cosmos take a wide variety of forms, from ephemeral sand mandalas that are painstakingly constructed and then swept away, to the enduring structures of certain Buddhist monasteries, where the buildings themselves reproduce the geometric elements of the cosmological map. These representations of the cosmos are sometimes figurative, including depictions of persons and animals and topographical elements like mountains and oceans, while others can take highly abstracted, almost schematic geometric forms. Throughout the book, Huntington provides extensive visual annotations to these images, enabling the uninitiated reader to grasp the cosmological complexity and the diversity and variation that imbue cosmological images, and what those variations might actually tell us about the specific agendas that underlie how and why particular cosmological representations were produced and used. One of Huntington's main arguments is that cosmological thinking is more than just a derivative feature of Buddhist thought and practice, but rather is central to how Buddhists imagine their place in the world, and as such directly informed the kinds of texts they wrote, the rituals they developed, the temples and monasteries they built, and the religious art they created. By calling our attention to Buddhist cosmology, a topic that's familiar to all scholars of Buddhism, but which has rarely received the kind of sustained critical attention it deserves, Huntington opens for his readers a new window through which to view Buddhist doctrine, ritual, and soteriology. As such, I think this book will be of interest to anyone who works on the religious history and material culture of Tibet, Nepal, and India, to students of religious art, architecture, material culture, and art history more broadly, as well as to anyone working in Buddhist studies and even religious studies in general, where I think Huntington's interdisciplinary approach to working with non-textual material will inspire many scholars situated beyond the immediate field of Buddhist studies. So with that, I would like to welcome Eric Huntington to the podcast. Eric, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm really excited to dive into this wonderful book with you. Oh, thank you, Lena. It's a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate the beautiful summary of the book you just gave. Oh, well, it's really great to talk to you. Um, this is such a wonderful volume. There's so much for us to get into. Uh, but before we dive in, uh, as is customary on the New Books podcast, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your personal biography and background. You know, what was your first exposure to Buddhism? What got you interested in pursuing Buddhist studies? And how did you go about doing that? 
Oh, sure. Well, it's a, quite a long and complicated story, which uh, may help to explain my sort of interdisciplinary approach to, to Buddhist studies in some ways. Um, I started out uh, actually as an undergraduate interested in uh, mathematics and the hard sciences. Um, and somehow along the way, you take a lot of different classes. And I ended up as a major in uh, philosophy and biopsychology studying um, uh, the neuroscience of perception, visual perception, and how we process images and understand the world around us. And um, somehow I uh, decided uh, at, in my senior year to just uh, as a lark, I had always been interested in visual arts uh, as well. And I sort of applied to art schools thinking I might do something related to that. And I ended up uh, going on and getting a BFA and an MFA in painting and illustration as well. Um, and while this sounds like a real sort of left turn, uh, it sort of made sense to me that I was interested in visual perception and, and how the brain works, but also how we create images and how we record the things that we see in painting and things like that, and those kinds of processes of cognition. Um, and while I was uh, in art school, I you know, took art history classes and I started learning about Zen ink paintings in Japan and uh, did some study abroad in Japan and, um, and started getting interested in um, Buddhism uh, and Buddhist art more particularly. And I sort of uh, traced that back to, um, you know, India and the Himalayas. Um, and learning more about Buddhist philosophy. And uh, I realized that actually by studying Buddhism uh, as a discipline, um, I could sort of combine all of the interests that I had. There's of course great um, philosophy and sort of science of cognition. There's great interest in perception and the ways that humans understand the world around them. But this, it's not limited to just philosophical or scientific or textual discussions because there are also great traditions of Buddhist art that incorporate a lot of these ideas. And uh, there was just sort of an immense variety of the kinds of things that I was interested in from all of these different fields. Uh, and I thought by pursuing Buddhist studies, it would give me the opportunity to take advantage of all my interests in a, a really coherent way. Wow, that's so fascinating. I mean, you know, this this background you have in the study of visual perception and cognition, in some ways, I think that actually does come out in the book in different ways. And uh, your background in um, painting and illustration, I'm wondering, um, can you tell us more about how your training in art, uh, so not just the theory or history, but the actual practice of making art, you've touched on this, but expand a little on how this might have shaped uh, your approach to what you study now. So, um, in other words, like because of your background, how do you see yourself asking maybe different kinds of questions from, let's say, a scholar who approaches things from a textual or philological background or from a Buddhist philosophical background, for example? Oh, sure. That's, that's a great question. And I think this is really one of the sort of central themes of the way I approach the material that I work on. Um, describing it in terms of, of being an art student, I would describe it as the process of um, sort of taking an idea and making that idea into something real, whether that's a painting or a sculpture or something like that. That um, that process of, of converting or um, concretizing something and making all those choices of, you know, well, you have this grand idea for some abstract project, but, you know, what size canvas do you paint it on? What medium do you use? What kind of color palette do you use? And all of those choices sort of limit the grand abstract idea in your in your head into a very concrete thing. Um, and that's sort of the basic process that I'm interested in in um, Buddhist uh, culture as well, whether that concrete thing that you're making is a text or a building or a painting or a sculpture or even a ritual performance and practice. Um, those are all sort of, uh, uh, you know, concretized, reified versions 
of, of something that's thought of in a broader way in some way. And of course, people can argue whether the idea comes first or the object comes first, and there's lots of tensions back and forth and things like that. But that, um, that sort of process of, of converting, conversion, uh, sorry, converting, simplifying, complexifying, what is the relationship between those different things? That's, that's really uh, one of the core um, impulses behind my scholarship. And I think that's why, as you'll see in the book, um, I treat you know text and architecture and painting somewhat equivalently because they're all different ways of expressing or capturing or concretizing something. Um, and we can't take any of them as primary. And also the idea itself that might be behind it is not primary, but these are all just sort of examples and ways of playing with these different kinds of forms. That is so fascinating. What an interesting kind of angle to approach all of this material. I think this uh, really touches on your interest in uh, the practices of art and art making. Uh, but now I'd like to ask you, uh, what is it that initially drew you then to the topic of cosmology as the focus of this? Um, and also maybe how has your understanding of what you call cosmological thinking maybe evolved or changed over the course of researching and writing this book? Sure. Well, I think in some ways the the kind of project that I ended up with um, it really is this culmination of all of my very interest various various interests going back to when I studied physics and astronomy as an undergrad because cosmology is of course tied to all of these um, sort of abstract ways we have of understanding the world but um, more approximately the um, the the process of sort of discovering this topic was uh, from uh, traveling through Asia and, and going to monasteries in Ladakh and Bhutan and places like that and uh, seeing all of these different kinds of murals and, and artworks that had to do with the cosmos and um, you know finding explanations in scholarship that uh, you know typically just traced all of these different images to the Abhidharma Kosha usually um, and but in seeing the images you see this immense variety there's so many different ways of, of painting the cosmos and building rituals around the cosmos and so I just sort of realized that there there needed to be a better explanation than just tracing all of these things to one text um, and one of the other things that I really liked about the, the this project then is that while it is a project in tantric Buddhism and in, in Himalayan tantric uh, traditions of Buddhism, um, it's, it's basically an exoteric or a, a rather public kind of uh, form. These murals are painted at the entranceways to the monastery, so everybody that visits the monastery can see them. And so instead of focusing on a sort of very secret, very esoteric kind of ritual or artwork or performance um, that might only, you know, ever be understood by just a very few um, people. Um, this was a topic that allowed me to examine something that was really public and really foundational, but not at all simple. It's, there was plenty of material to work with, text, images, rituals, um, because this is such a, a public and foundational aspect of Buddhist traditions, um, but it's not as straightforward as it seems. Uh, and so that was really something that um, provided me a lot of material to work with and a lot of complexity to enjoy. That's wonderful. Uh, so picking up on this, in the spirit of taking things that may appear esoteric and making them more accessible, I'd like to ask you, um, before we really jump into uh, the substance of this book, could you explain for listeners who may not be so familiar with Buddhist cosmology, what the Buddhist cosmos basically looks like, um, you know, how it's organized, what are its basic features. We'll be delving into um, a bunch of the details and variations on this later, but I just want to uh, kind of have you set the stage in a very introductory way to orient our listeners, if you would. 
Sure, absolutely. And, and as you say, there are a variety of different details in, in imagining this, uh, you know, complex universe. But uh, just to give your listeners a, a basic idea of what to sort of picture in their minds when we're talking about all this. Um, when we talk about Buddhist cosmology or the Buddhist universe, the, the simplest version of that is basically a single world. So what we might call a you know, planet or something like that in, in modern science. But it's a single geographic physical space with mountains and continents and oceans and so forth. And um, the, the distinguishing feature of this space is that it's essentially a cylindrical or a disk. And all of the um, mountains and continents and inhabitants uh, mostly live more or less on the, the flat circular surface of that disk. Um, there's crucially an important mountain at the center called Sumeru or Meru. And this, this, this enormous mountain is where uh, many of the different gods or devas of the Buddhist system dwell up on various levels of the peaks and terraces. Um, there are further heavens above Meru. And then our human realm, where, where humans dwell, is actually a, just a small continent or island in the periphery of that system, past many other ranges of mountains and oceans. Um, it's called Jambudvipa. And then there's a, a circular ring of mountains around the very edge of the cosmos that sort of bounds it uh, in, into a, a, a contained circular space. And the different versions of, of Buddhist cosmology say that there may be many similar cosmoses like this, sort of all next to each other, or they may stack in different ways. And, and the question of relationships between those is, is very complicated. But when we're talking about the Buddhist universe or the Buddhist cosmos, we're basically talking about the circular disk uh, where people dwell. Perfect. That's a really great kind of introductory. I think we all have sort of an image in our minds now of kind of orienting ourselves in this space that you're uh, exploring in the book. So um, before we get into it, though, I wanted to start off with a couple questions that then relate to your research methods. Um, I recall once, I think we were chatting about uh, it, probably the Mogao Caves in Dunhuang, and you mentioned uh, just really briefly that you've developed your own kind of individually tailored notation system for when you're in the field, you know, collecting data at important art historical research sites. So I'm wondering if you could um, imaginatively transport us uh, with you to one of your research sites, you know, of your choosing, perhaps one that's featured in the book, and kind of walk us through what a typical field visit is for you, you know, how you prepare, what what are you looking for when you're at these locations? How do you collect and record your data? How do you orient yourself and so forth? That's a really wonderful question. Um, so uh, how do I prepare? Well, first of all, you know, try to research the kinds of sites you want to look at and where there might be important things. Um, but the most important part of preparation is to sort of be ready for anything because you never know when you're going to visit some monastery and talk to a monk there who will let you into some uh, you know, uh, library that they, you know, don't typically have open, but that day it happens to be unlocked and, you know, uh, there may be something really interesting there. So part of the, the fun of fieldwork is the discovery, of course. Um, a lot of my uh, fieldwork involves um, photographing artwork in situ. So, you know, murals in, in architecture, uh, things like that. Um, and drawing ground plans of, of architectural sites. And of course, talking to uh, um, uh, uh, people that may be uh, living in the area or monks at a monastery, uh, things like that, people doing ritual performances. So um, often when I go to a site, uh, since I work on, especially on, on spatial issues, one of the first things that I'll do is um, draw just a quick ground plan, sort of a sketch in a notebook so that I can start thinking about the kind of space that is. 
Um, and then as I take photographs of artwork in situ, I can uh, mark on that diagram where I take photographs and how those things appear in relationship to each other. Um, and um, often then when I get home, I can um, you know take all of those photographs and organize them very well into different maps of spaces and, and categorize them in different ways. Um, I happen to use a, a software called Adobe Lightroom, uh, which is a photo databasing software that allows me to catalog the tens of thousands of images that I take on fieldwork and tag them with different keywords and things like that. So if I'm searching for, uh, you know, some particular depiction of an, uh, an offering ritual or something like that, I can pull up, you know, everyone that I've ever photographed, uh, which is really an amazing thing that, you know, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to do. And this is a, a, a really um, great benefit to my research. Um, let's see, what, did, I, did I answer your question? I think uh, just talking about my basic field methodology, that's, that gives you some impression of what I do at, at sites. Was there more to it? Uh, no, absolutely. That's a really helpful um, helpful introduction. It really, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me here that uh, behind the creation of this book is also, you know, your ongoing creation of your own database that uh, is itself kind of an additional, you know, a, a majorly significant kind of repository of information that, um, you know, is a major contribution. Perhaps it's private now, but in terms of when we think about the digital humanities, just the possibilities that that kind of uh, research opens up are really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, um, you know, more and more scholars are making their photographic collections um, public or semi-public these days, which is something that I, I am trying to do when I eventually have time for that. Um, but the, the the possibilities of the kind of research uh, that's, that is that is possible with modern software and with, you know, GPS tagging data and all of that, um, it's just really amazing the kinds of things. You know, one of the reasons my work is so comparative, or at least I, I use the word comparative to describe my work, uh, is because it's possible to organize this, this kind of data from so many different sites and so many different kinds of textual resources um, and, and uh, things together um, by using all of these new tools. Absolutely. It's really exciting stuff. Um, so one final question, just kind of about uh, the, the method and the process of creating this book. For me, you know, one of the real pleasures of, of spending time with this book uh, wasn't only, you know, the extensive research and great writing and stuff, but also just how richly illustrated it is. Um, and you're not just providing photographs of, you know, the architecture and art objects and paintings you discuss, but in many cases, you provide provide, you know, side by side with those photographs, these kind of schematic diagrams that are extensively annotated, where you essentially label each little detailed part of the work of art and basically help your reader kind of visually unpack all of the elements contained in the art object in ways that, you know, we would not be able to do otherwise, right? So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the process of making those annotated diagrams and and maybe also some of the, um, I don't know, challenges you might have encountered, um, for instance, like when trying to reconstruct a diagram from a textual description that might be missing key information or have, you know, certain inconsistencies on certain details, um, or even the challenge of rendering those diagrams to scale when many of them are just dealing with these inconceivably large units of measurement. So, so how did you approach that whole process? Yeah, so uh, I mean, obviously, sort of visual communication is one of the key themes of my work, both 
my own visual communication and the communication that's um, provided by traditional Buddhist artwork and visual culture. Um, and so I really try to exemplify that with um, both with the images that I select and the images that I draw. Um, and I think, you know, obviously in religious studies and Buddhist studies, we have this long history of sort of relying on texts as authoritative sources for information. And there are all kinds of complicated reasons for that and, and, and concerns about relying on text too much and things like that. But one of the factors involved in that is, of course, that texts are so easy to read. Once you, once you learn the language, you read it and you know what it says and you can say, ah, well, that's what it says. Um, and images are not always easy to read in that way uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, you don't necessarily know what kinds of images they were drawing on, like the way that a text might quote another text. Um, they're not uh, explicit in terms of the concepts that are invoked. You may need to know a sort of visual language that's different than a textual language. So uh, one of the priorities and the way that I have in this work and the ways that I try to equalize text and image and architecture and all of these different things is sort of provide a way of uh, a lesson in, in reading images. And when we're looking at this, how do we parse all this stuff and, and put a put a bigger picture together of what it means and what it's saying about all of these different things. So um, that was a real priority in the book. And um, as you said, uh, one of the ways that I try to exemplify the difference between text and images, for example, in the, in the first chapter, which is largely about the so-called authoritative textual sources, is I don't use any indigenous images in that chapter because people too often just point to an indigenous image and just say that it's an illustration of the text without actually looking for differences between those or seeing the, the historical relationship between those. So I try to sort of interpret them with whatever information is available in the actual text itself and of course, my interpretation is just an interpretation, just like any other indigenous illustration or any other modern illustration. Uh, illustration. So I could be wrong. I, you know, I might have misinterpreted something, but I try to show what what we can actually get from the text, and then how that compares to different kinds of images, different kinds of um, uh, sculptures and ritual performances and things like that, and what kind of language of structures and language of symbols and language of styles we can talk about to sort of put all these things on an uneven playing field. And as you say, you, you know, you don't always know uh, um, if you're uh, uh, missing some information uh, or, or not, but um, I try to point that out very carefully where we are missing information and precisely why that makes it important to make a distinction between text and images, um, because every example is its own instance of this kind of cosmological depiction and imagery and thought. Wonderful. Um, we will actually come back a little bit more to this whole question of, you know, what is the relationship uh, in your view between text and uh, image or text and idea? And you have a chapter on this point that we'll get to in a moment. But first, I'd like to actually just start us off with the introduction. Um, I think you have this really compelling introduction in which you really let, set the stage, you know, not just for why we should be interested in cosmology and Buddhist studies, but actually you make the case for the importance of what you call cosmological thinking, right? Which you, you argue is not just a Buddhist thing, but something of a universal human preoccupation. Um, and as an illustration, you use this example of the Copernican revolution, right? Where you say this kind of occasioned a radical shift in our cosmological vision of ourselves and our planet. And also the example of the first publication of Carl Sagan's famous photograph called The Pale Blue Dot, right? Where we see the Earth as kind of a tiny, tiny little speck, uh, like a speck of dust seen from space. 
So I'm wondering if you could unpack for us the connection that you're making between those famous events and the larger argument that you're making in this book. Sure. And I think this is sort of an idea that came to me from my, my studies in neuroscience as an undergrad, which is that we, we have all these different modes of cognition, right? We have linguistic modes of cognition and visual modes of cognition and uh, kinesthetic and all of these different things. And um, there's not necessarily one that's primary or one that commands all of the others. These are all, all things that are happening simultaneously. So, you know, as we're having a conversation right now. I'm thinking linguistically in order to listen to you and talk to you, but I'm also aware of the space that I'm in and I, I'm aware of what my eyes are perceiving that have nothing to do with that conversation in particular. And so um, I realized that, you know, in Buddhist studies, we have all of these different, you know, ways of talking about um, cognition in Buddhist studies. So there's literary models and po poetic models and ritual models and all of these. Um, but one of the things that had been sort of pushed to the side was this idea of, of cosmology. And uh, I always try to think, you know, whenever I'm doing a project, what's the sort of farthest I can step back from that project to really see its larger significance, not just in the Himalayas, not just in Buddhism, but, you know, what, what does it really mean to do this kind of project? And if you look throughout human history, you see, you know, a, a sort of infinite number of examples of people trying to understand the world that they live in, whether it's trying to understand their local landscape of their town or, you know, the, the movement of the stars uh, or whatever. Um, and in many of those cases, what they're really trying to understand is how to interact with the world and what their role in the world is. So if you look at, you know, the biblical book of Genesis, it's in some ways a cosmological statement, but it's also about what the role of humans in, in the world is. Um, and the same for, you know, astrology, which is, you know, we're looking at the stars, but we're trying to understand how they affect us. And so that was seemed to be, to me, to be a sort of mode of cognition that we're thinking about our, ourselves and our, you know, human nature and our activities in the world. Um, but we're using a description of the exterior world, the, the geographic world, in order to think through that. Um, and there are many examples of that. Uh, and for example, um, uh, Pollock has an example, Sheldon Pollock has an example of the geography of India being used to categorize different kinds of humans and human behavior and things like that. And so we can use geography or people can use geography as a model for, you know, categorize different kinds of behavior, different kinds of thought. Uh, and as you said, with the examples of, of Sagan, for example, just the, the image of the earth as this you know, pale blue dot, this single blue pixel in this vast field of empty space is not just a scientific image uh, of, of based on astronomy. It evokes all of this emotion of, you know, oh my gosh, we're on this tiny little, you know, island in the middle of vast emptiness. We need to protect the ecology of our planet. We need to be nice to our neighbors and all of that. And so that image of the universe really has sort of deep emotional and humanistic uh, potential. And that's what I wanted to draw out of, of the study of Buddhist cosmology is not just cosmology as a sort of pseudo-scientific scholastic, you know, exercise in describing a world that, you know, modern science has already disproven. But what does it actually mean to think of the world in a certain way? Yeah, this is this is one of the uh, areas where I think your book does such a good job of uh, rooting yourself in the particular of Buddhist studies and careful, rigorous scholarship, but also opening into these wider questions that are of relevance outside of the study of Buddhism uh, in the humanities and in philosophy and in like broader questions uh, more generally. So that's really, really well done. You know, I'm struck in your answer. You say you mentioned, you know, this kind of tendency whereby Buddhist 
um, attention to Buddhist cosmology has been kind of pushed to the side. Um, that's something you 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 do also mention in the book that it hasn't quite received the the attention that it deserves. So. I'm wondering, uh, first, maybe if you could say why it is you think that cosmology has been understudied in this way. And um, second, what is it that taking up this topic, you know, brings to the table? How does focusing on cosmological thinking allow us to see things about Buddhist history or ritual or practice that we wouldn't see otherwise? Sure. Well, um, there's a lot of different ways that I can answer this question, so I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. Um, but the, one of the m most important reasons why people have sort of stopped studying Buddhist cosmology for a while is probably the influence of, of structure, structuralism uh, in the study of religion. And um, these sort of notions of the sacred center and the axis mundi and things like that, um, that, you know, we're, can be prog problematic in, in a lot of ways for, for generalizing too broadly and making assumptions about a, a variety of different traditions that may not really be related to each other. And in part because the Buddhist cosmology uh, was in a way one of the sources for that kind of thinking about the sacred center and the Axis Mundi and all of that, um, it became sort of unfashionable to talk about it at all because it was hard to understand a way that one could talk about it without invoking some of those structuralist concepts. And so um, it sort of went out of fashion for a while, although there, were, there have always been scholars who uh, talked about its importance, uh, Pambaya and others um, have, have definitely uh, been uh, promoters of thinking cosmologically in Buddhism. And I must say that, you know, after doing this project, I've met a lot of younger scholars and, and graduate students and, and people like that who seem very interested in Buddhist cosmology. So um, I think, you know, we may have sort of turned a corner and that the, 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 the decades old studies of Buddhist cosmology that were sort of the most um, uh, up-to-date uh, treatments of the material for a while. Um, uh, I have now, you know, people have, have read those and realized that there's more to do. Um, so I think that that's a, a really good sign. And I think that the thing that is gained by doing all of this is um, really understanding something fundamental about uh, a worldview of Buddhism, that, um, it, again, it's not just the sort of scholastic topic that, oh, you know, in the ancient times, Buddhist people believe this weird thing about the world, um, but rather, you know, this is if we if you really understand, uh, if you really think about the way someone understands what their world is like, that's foundational to how they behave in that world and how they think about the goals of religion and all of this. So while it, in some ways it's a very straightforward model, I know, you know, most people that I know that teach Buddhism at the college level have a, you know, a day or two on Buddhist cosmology and they say, you know, this is what Buddhist cosmology is like. Um, the goal here is really to connect that to so many other aspects of the religion, not just as a sort of uh, subtopic. Um, but, you know, if you think about, uh, for example, you know, the way we think about our, you know, national borders and things like that today, that affects our, our everyday lives and the kinds of things we do, you know, which newspapers we read, um, which, you know, uh, politics we follow and all of that. We don't talk about that in terms of geography and cosmology, but I think that Buddhist cosmology has that same kind of depth of effect to Buddhist practices um, uh, uh, that is something that needs to be discussed more and revealed. 
I'm so glad you uh, mentioned the whole question of structuralism here in your answer, because I think that uh, in your book, you include a very, you know, I would say calculated and careful discussion of what you call, you know, the place of structure, uh, which is to say uh, the extent to which we can say, look at, you know, individual examples of cosmological thinking. And then from those particular examples, recognize or identify, you know, general principles that hold true in a more kind of abstract or general way. And I think you're very careful, you know, not to venture into the world of ahistorical universals or like total abstraction. And yet you seem to want to kind of strike a, a middle ground, to want to make the case for why we can and should pay attention to thematic and structural connections that extend across, you know, wide swaths of Buddhist culture. So I I want to ask you, in writing this book, how did you, you know, find that proper balance for yourself, you know, between attention to historical particularity on the one hand, you know, while also uh, not wanting to neglect, you know, the broader structural and thematic connections that that actually transcend any one particular uh, person, place or, or time? So the, the short answer to that is to always work from the evidence first and not have a sort of try to try to avoid having a preconception of, of what I thought it meant or what the important structure was or things like that. I mean, one of the sort of um, pitfalls of, of structuralist ways of thinking is to say, oh, well, you know, there's I noticed there's this thing, the, cent the center is always important versus the periphery. And so let's look for that structure everywhere we can find it and, and see that as a universal. Um, and so I didn't try to do that in particular you know in this example the center may be important in this example example this other example the top or bottom may be important in this example the periphery may be important and so not to say that there's some kind of um, universal structural principles uh, or even that structure itself may be important I mean in other examples the poetics of the way you describe something may be important so it's not that structure is the only thing there is or that there are particular structures that are most important but that the cosmology, because it's a geographic space, it's, it's defined spatially in terms of different kinds of places and their, their relationships to each other, provides ways of thinking about other issues in religion through spatial structures. So if one wants to do a certain kind of ritual, the Buddhist cosmology provides the opportunity of, say, creating a hierarchical relationship between two different parts of that ritual through you know, altitude, say, of, of the geographic model. That doesn't mean that that's a, a universal principle of the Buddhist cosmos in all cases, um, but it's a way of thinking through how, you know, how do I develop a hierarchical relationship in this ritual or in another ritual of offering, uh, which is one of, in one of the later chapters, uh, the, you know, the primary concern seems to be filling the universe with wealth. So it's not about hierarchy and it's not about center versus periphery, but it's about sort of piling as much stuff into a, a finite space as possible. And that's another principle, but it's using that space for a particular purpose. And so just always thinking through what is that specific example doing? What's, what's the goal of that example? And how is it using the logic of space to accomplish that? Wonderful. And I think we'll have a chance to kind of return actually a little later to the question of um, particular purposes and the ways in which uh, cosmological representations are deployed in, in, in particular ways. Um, but first, I'd like to just turn to chapter one, actually, that, that has this uh, beautiful title, Cosmos in Texts Explaining the Blueness of the Sky. It's very poetic. Um, so I'd like you to maybe not just tell us, you know, what is it that explains 
explains the blueness of the sky here, but also maybe elaborate on the point you make early on, which is dealing with just the question of why, you know, in a book about the non-textual, you know, about art and material and visual culture, why do you begin with textual sources? And, and how do you propose that we think about the relation of those textual sources to the other kinds of non-textual materials that you then discuss in the rest of the book? Sure. It, it might be helpful for me to also give an overview of the four chapters and how those are, are sort of structured together. Sure, sure. Uh, um, so, I mean, just in terms of the titles, basically, but um, the, and, and, and sort of what the content is. The, um, so the chapters are Cosmos in Text, Cosmos in the Mandala, Cosmos in an Offering Ritual, and Cosmos in Painting and Architecture. I didn't get the titles exactly right because I'm trying to just summarize their contents. Um, but the point is to think about cosmos and cosmology in a variety of different contexts and intentionally not have those contexts be parallel. So it's not, you know, text versus art. You know, there's also um, a sort of doctrinal theory of the mandala chapter. There's also, uh, you know, the chapter on, on, on offering is also a chapter on ritual performance. And so it's not always about what the source of cosmology is, like as a textual source or an artistic source. It might be about the performance of that or the ideation of that. Um, and so to show that in each of these sort of radically different uh, um, contexts of thought about cosmology, re they require different ways of, of thinking about what cosmology is doing and, and how cosmology functions in, in those different um, contexts. Um, so the chapter on text introduces uh, the volume partially because this is where everybody always looks uh, to start with. Especially, uh, you know, the, the Abhidharma Kosha for the Himalayan uh, context is the sort of main canonical source. There's there's an, um, there's another uh, group of texts, the Kalachakra Corpus, which is especially important in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which I talk about uh, to some degree as well. Um, but you know, the point of starting with texts is to, in some ways, analyze the kinds of discussions that have been had about Buddhist cosmology, and also, you know, just very succinctly to show the limitations of text for all of these other contexts. So, as I said in this chapter, I don't use any indigenous illustrations or paintings or anything of the cosmos, because I want to focus on just what the texts say in and of themselves. Um, even to some degree without the extensive commentarial tradition that's developed around them, because um, those commentaries can also be tied to different aspects of ritual uh, uh, ritual and artistic traditions and things like that that might not be um, related to the intentions of the original author. So when I look at the Subandhu Zabhidharma Kosha, I'm trying as much as possible to recover why he thought cosmology was important. Um, and that's where the example of the title, The Blueness of the Sky comes from, because uh, what Vasubandhu thought was important was the uh, notion of causality in, in sort of Buddhist science, that everything in the world can be explained through causal processes. Um, and so the world is caused by certain factors, the karma, the actions of, of uh, sentient beings. Um, and that causes the existence of this enormous Mount Meru in the center of the universe. And that causes these different kinds of gems and minerals to grow up and form this mountain. Um, and one of, one of those kinds of gems is blue and it reflects its color into the sky. And so our sky is blue. And so there's this observable effect to this causal process. Um, and that's very different than the kinds of cosmology that are given in other, even if we're just looking in textual sources in other Buddhist texts. So the Kalachakra cosmology um, has a similar description of, of a mountain with different colors at the center of the universe and all of that. 
But in that system, the colors and, and gems that make up the mountain are tied to ritual concerns. They're tied to the, the five colors of the mountain uh, and the surrounding continents are tied to the, the basic elements of fire, earth, water, and so on, and the kinds of transformations of those elements that occur in ritual. So even though they're describing a fairly similar view of the, you know, the circular cosmos with the mountain in the center, the point of those texts is totally different. And even the details of the, the, the models that they describe to support those goals uh, are, are totally different. And so we can't just say, oh, well, this text, the, the Abhidharma Kosha or this text from the Kalachakra corpus describes the Buddhist cosmos, period. Um, and then all other really, you know, um, images or, or whatever of the Buddhist cosmos, you know, relate to that text. Now, Vasubandhu had a very particular goal in writing the Abhidharma Kosha, which especially focused on this notion of causality. And he left out a lot of important cosmological detail that doesn't relate to that notion of causality. And so that's what, we, that's how we have to understand the text, not as sources, but as examples of cosmological thinking. Yeah, this is such a great kind of um, sort of introduction or summary of how you unpack, you know, the variety of different uh, ideological agendas or ritual agendas or, or various kinds of priorities that people, you know, that are kind of embedded in these texts and the variety of ways in which those find expression. Um, you know, speaking of variety, you deal in this chapter not just with Buddhist textual sources, but you also look at Hindu and Jain sources as well as, you know, Buddhist narrative literature. So uh, I'm wondering if both in terms of like religious variety and variety in terms of genre, you can say a little bit about what you see as the, you know, connections and contrasts that you um, you see operating between these different these different um, texts. Well, so one one aspect of that is certainly that we have to look beyond the, the sort of texts that have been treated as authoritative. So, you know, I make a comparison in that chapter between again, the Abhidharma Kosha, because it's just such a important and often cited text in the Himalayan tradition. And uh, for example, narrative stories of the Buddha's life that talk about certain cosmological ideas without giving a fully coherent model of the cosmos. Um, but we can see even in those texts, other kinds of ways of cosmological thinking. So there's a, a part of, in the story of the Buddha's life uh, after he becomes enlightened, where these four great kings that are associated with the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, uh, come to him and they each offer him a, a, a begging bowl for his use. And he you know, doesn't want to honor one over the other by just taking one bowl, but he doesn't really need four bowls. So he fuses them together into a single bowl. And while that's a you know, really nice sort of a miraculous story that talks about the, you know, the, the Buddha's personality after his enlightenment. Um, that's also a cosmological statement that he's basically accepting uh, allegiance or, you know, fealty from the four directions of the cosmos. And he has become the center of the universe in that story. Um, and that notion of, of the sort of directionality and spatiality of the cosmos in that story is quite different than what you get in the Abhidharma Kosha, which describes a very hierarchical uh, system. I mean, to put it simply, the, the Buddha in the cosmos of the Abhidharma lived in Jambudvipa, this very peripheral continent where humans dwell. But in the narrative story, he becomes the center of the universe. Um, and so we need to look beyond you know, the traditional authoritative sources. We need to think comparatively, not just within Buddhist traditions, but um, you know, outside of Buddhist traditions, what other kinds of Indic cosmologies were going on. Um, there's an, an example that I give 
in a later chapter about um, the relationship of uh, Homa altars to Buddhist cosmology. And, uh, you know, it's sort of questionable whether there's any relationship or not, and people argue about this. But if you look at that in the broader context of Hindu cosmology and Jain cosmology and all of this, you can start to see some connections that wouldn't have been apparent just by looking at Buddhist traditions. Yeah, this is all such fascinating material. There's so much we could uh, continue to talk about on it. But I want to uh, jump into the next chapter, which, as you've mentioned, is called Cosmos in the Mandala. Um, And one of the core themes, I think, in this chapter is what we might call the resonance between um, local reality and, say, ultimate truth or the collapsing of the local and the cosmic within the imagery of the mandala. Uh, and as you explained, you know, the mandala is this image that uh, at one and the same time can invoke this wide range of different levels of meaning, you know, including being a metaphorical picture of the awakened mind, uh, an idealized architectural palace, the mythical sacred mountain, and like even the entire expanse of, you know, the, the cosmos itself. So on the topic of the polyvalence of the mandala, uh, I want to quote something that you say a few times in the chapter. It's really fascinating. And just invite you to unpack it a little bit for our listeners. You write, Ritually creating a mandala in the here and now collapses the separation between local and cosmic, transcending notions of space and place precisely by invoking them. And elsewhere, you also say, you know, local place is radically important precisely as it's transcended. So I'd like you to elaborate on this, you know, apparent paradox, which is how does the mandala, you know, both affirm the here and now precisely as it transcends it? And what is what is salient to you about that dynamic dual function? Sure. Well, thanks for asking about the most difficult part to explain. That's it's definitely it's definitely a complicated topic that takes me the whole chapter to sort of uh, unpack. But um, it is really the sort of key uh, point to some of the things that I'm talking about in the mandala uh, traditions. Um, and you know, again, there, there I can make a distinction maybe to, to especially for li- listeners that might not be familiar with mandalas and tantric Buddhism and things like that. I can sort of uh, make a distinction that might help to explain what we're talking about. So. Um, in the traditional narrative of the life of the Buddha, he was just this human figure who became enlightened in this continent of Jambudvipa under this, you know, the Bodhi tree. Um, and in the turn to tantric Buddhism, there is this new narrative that develops that at the moment, uh, especially from a text uh, called the Compendium of Principles of Altatagatas from about the seventh century or so, there's this narrative that develops that the Buddha at the moment of his enlightenment was sort of, uh, you know, uh, um, miraculously transported to the peak of Meru at the center of the cosmos and and generated this assembly of of figures around him and became this sort of cosmic uh, figure of enlightenment. And so, the, the act of becoming enlightened um, became associated with the, the, a cosmic structure, basically. Um, and so mandalas mean a lot of different things. As you said, they are uh, maps of the human mind and all of, uh, of many other different kinds of uh, concepts. Um, so I don't try to deal with all of those concepts of the mandala in this chapter, but only the, the sort of cosmological ones. Um, and so one of the things that you see is that uh, images of the mandala and rituals of the mandala capture something about this cosmic structure of the process of enlightenment. Um, and it's really about turning that narrative of the life of the Buddha, who 
had this cosmological transformation as he became enlightened into a repeatable ritual that anybody can do at any time. Um, and in particularly in art and architecture, this becomes instantiated when people draw mandalas, paint mandalas, or build buildings and monasteries and stupas and things like that. I, I give the example of a, um, a kind of chaitya or a stupa, a monument in Nepal, that as it's being uh, built and consecrated, uh, a mandala is installed within that object, essentially turning that object into a replica of the moment of the Buddha's enlightenment at the peak of the cosmos. But of course, that object is in the Kathmandu Valley. It's, it's not at the peak of Sumeru. And so this is where that connection between um, the sort of local and the, the ultimate or, or the cosmological that you um, describe comes in. And um, there's, I think that you know, one of the key things to understand about what I say about this relationship is um, there's no one way that that relationship works universally across Buddhist tantric mandalas. There's a variety of different ways that that relationship can be instantiated or conceived of. So um, uh, uh, for example, in a meditation, one imagines dissolving the entire universe and rebuilding it from its very elements up to the mandala palace at the peak of Meru. Uh, in architecture, you may install a mandala below the foundation of a building and, and so on. There's all these different, many different ways, but the relationship between, you know, who we are in the here and now, whether we're trying to do a meditation or trying to build a building or whatever. Um, and this larger cosmological principle is sort of what's at stake uh, when we're using cosmological thinking as the, as the mode of engaging this material. And that's where you know, the sacrality of the chaitya comes in or the potential of a meditation to uh, you know, give us enlightenment. Um, it's all because of that relationship between the local and, and the ultimate, as you said. Yes. And in this chapter, you give so many great examples of how this dynamic is at play. So I'll flag this for readers who want to learn more is to definitely pick up the book and pay attention to this, this really fascinating chapter. Um, and now, I mean, I'm looking at our time. I'd like to keep going and, and continue through the next chapter that's Cosmos and Offering, because now you're, you're bringing us into the world of Buddhist practice, right? Um, here we get into uh, the ways in which cosmological thinking is at play in the actual practice of ritual offering, as you've mentioned, right, which is a central part of Buddhist practice and devotion. So I'm wondering if we can begin by having you just give us a descriptive sense of the variety variety of offerings that you deal with in this chapter, you know, just, just what is their physical arrangement and material composition? What does their cosmological representation consist in? How are they ritually imply, uh, employed? And above all, kind of what do these offerings tell us about the ritual, the ritual function of cosmological thinking? Sure. Well, and so, as you said, part of the idea for this chapter is to focus on ritual and how, uh, as opposed to the earlier chapter on texts or the, the preceding chapter on the mandala, which is a sort of doctrinal ideological argument, how the actual physical performance of a ritual by people in space can affect the way that the cosmos is thought, is thought of um, uh, in that context. And the, the basic topic of the chapter is a, is a tantric ritual uh, that happens in Nepal and in Tibet and other places in various ways, when one ritually uh, recreates a, a model or a simulacrum of the entire cosmos and fills it with wealth and gives it to a teacher or a, a deity as a sign of sort of ultimate devotion and being willing to trade 
um, all possible wealth for the teachings of Buddhism. Um, and, you know, I, as, as you said, I deal with a variety of different relationships of offering and cosmos uh, in this chapter. So I go back to, for example, the story of Ashoka, who was a, uh, an emperor in India, and famously, according to his biography, at least, uh, gave an immense donation of his entire kingdom of the entire world to the Buddhist Sangha. And again, this is the sort of uh, a narrative version of what becomes in Tantric Buddhism, a ritual that can be practiced by anyone. But the, the thing that's unique about this offering ritual as, comp as compared to, for example, the mandala meditation of the previous chapter, is it focuses on this royal imagery of kings and their wealth, rather than, for example, the you know, destruction and elemental reconstruction of the cosmos that I just described a minute ago. So when one creates this mandala, as opposed to the other kind of mandala, um, they imagine filling it with the treasures of a king, including the queens and ministers and horses and elephants that you know, kings have, um, and all kinds of various treasures and, and uh, objects of sense enjoyment and things like that. And so it's a very different way of using the cos cosmos as a framework um, for uh, um, a particular kind of religious activity. And then the, the, the part about the ritual performance having an effect um, gives this image of the cosmos a different kind of um, a structure and detail when it later appears in artwork and other forms. So uh, just to sort of briefly give an overview of, of some of the conclusions, um, I sort of outlined two different ways of doing this ritual. One, again, the, the cosmos is basically a big circle. So one way of doing the ritual starts in the middle of that circle and sort of spirals outward, filling it with offerings. Another way starts at the periphery of the circle and spirals inward, filling it with offerings. Um, and the way this is done physically is that the latter version, as it's spiraling inward, piles higher and higher and higher. So you get the sort of mountain of offerings at the end, where the spiraling outward doesn't because you're no longer filling up the middle uh, with offerings. And so this idea of this pile of offerings because it becomes through the practice of the ritual, actually it's key structural principle. So this is not determined by a textual source or some kind of ideology, but just by the practice of the ritual, there's this idea of this verticalized heap that then gets depicted in artwork. The cosmos itself, when it's depicted in many examples in the Tibetan context, becomes highly, highly verticalized. Um, and most of these depictions are traceable to th this particular performance rather than a textual source or something else. And so that's what I try to highlight in, in this chapter is not only the different kind of meaning and symbolism of cosmological thinking in an offering ritual, but the different kinds of effects that textual or ideological or ritual performative context can have on cosmological thinking. That's so great. And this is one of the things I think you do such a great job um, at throughout this book, which is taking, you know, this idea, cos cosmological thinking that um, I think some of us might sort of think about in abstract or theoretical terms. And instead, you bring it down into materiality in this chapter and to, as you mentioned, you know, the performance of ritual in space, right? This whole dimension of space and spatiality, which which then um, comes up a lot in your final chapter, chapter four, that we're going to turn to in just a moment. But I want to ask you just one more question about this fascinating chapter on offering. Um, it's a passage where you quote the Gandhi of Yuha Sutra, where uh, we find this like beautiful description of Samantabhadra's cloud of offerings, right? This is this like unimaginably and inconceivably vast 
offering to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas where, you know, he emanates from his heart hundreds and thousands of millions of many colored rays. And at the tip of each ray is hundreds and thousands of millions of many colored rays. And each one has this offering and you're left with just this massive kind of image of inconceivable magnitude, right? Now, this kind of superlative description will sound familiar, I think, to anyone who works with Mahayana Buddhist literature. And in a way, you know, I was thinking, I see this as kind of one side of the coin, you know, this preoccupation with inconceivable vastness. And then the other side of the coin being this impulse that we see throughout many of the examples you give, which are like this precise drawing of boundaries, you know, with delineation, with order, with organizing, you know, the whole cosmos into these like very clearly circumscribed and bounded constituent parts. And, you know, this is just sort of driving from my own personal curiosity. I want to ask you just sort of generally, what do you think is going on with you know, on the one hand, this impulse to move towards inconceivable vastness, and at the same time, this preoccupation with clear delineation and structure and order and boundaries. Absolutely. Yeah, that's an important theme. And I should just clarify one thing. I actually look, was looking at the passage that you mentioned this morning, and I realized that I the way I wrote the sentence sounded like the quote was from the Gunda Vuhov. It's actually from a commentary. It's a different source. So oh. I apologize to all my readers for misleading everyone. Um, but, Thank uh, you. We've if, set the record uh, straight. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be careful next time. But um, the, the imagery that you're pointing to is exactly in the Gunda Vuhov as well of this, this sort of incredible multiplication filling the cosmos and all of that. Um, and this is one of the keys, especially of this chapter, but uh, of other other uh, uh, um, examples as well, is this tension between this, you know, strive to sort of, um, cap, you know, capture the the whole of infinity in a, in a sort of limited, finite, concretely realizable way, but also not be limiting oneself to just the sort of ordinary, mundane. Thing right in front of you and be, you know, actually invoking something that's bigger than that. And, um, you know, I, I think in some ways that this, there's a tendency of this tension to become more and more exaggerated through different stages of Buddhist history. And of course, people um, who, who, who have expertise in these uh, other areas may completely disagree with me about this, but at least from kind of areas that I work on, it seems like there's a sort of um, progression of thinking of, of the Buddha or the state of enlightenment or any of these things uh, in sort of ever grander terms. I mean, this is what happens in the Mahayana and this is what happens in Vajrayana as well. The, you know, the Buddha becomes sort of more and more universal and pervasive and indescribable and all of these things. Um, but at the same time, the uh, technology, the rituals of invocation and things like that make that infinity more and more accessible. So um, again, it's like the, this, this, you know, the, the offering of Ashoka versus the, the ritual of the offering. In, in the abstract, there's this one great figure who did this amazing thing. Um, but in the sort of concrete and real, well, we have this ritual that we can do that same sort of thing too in our own uh, limited way. Um, and I think that that, uh, especially in, in the kind of Vajrayana or, uh, or Tantric Buddhism that I study, um, becomes a, a main mode of, of engaging with these things, especially through um, ritual performances and artistic products, that there's this wealth of, of ways that Buddhists have of capturing that idea of infinity, but 
within that capturing, there's always an, a, a, an expression or an intention back outward to infinity. So when one does this offering ritual, uh, where one creates the entire cosmos in this small little metal platter, you know, in a, in a little shrine room, um, you know, the end of the offering is to sort of sprinkle more rice and wealth and things on top and imagine that offering expanding outward to fill the entire actual cosmos or multiple cosmoses and, and the sort of great infinity. And that, that playback and forth is really where a lot of the meaning comes from in these rituals. Yeah, that's so, so fascinating and um, just really rich and, and evocative. Um, so I want to move on now to your final chapter, Cosmos in Architecture, which uh, is where you make, I think, some really well articulated points about how we need to look at the the meaning and function of images and sacred objects, not as being, you know, self-contained within the object, but rather discernible only with reference to the object's spatiality, right? Something that you've already touched on in our discussion. So the way that, for instance, like the meaning of a mandala and one wall of, uh, you know, shrine room or something should be interpreted in relation to the images on the opposite wall, or how like a certain architectural structure needs to to be interpreted in light of the surrounding structures that make it like one part of a larger whole, or even, and again, this is something that that you touch on, the meaning of you know how different sacred images or objects or structures actually relate to the way a person is supposed to move through the space, physically move through the space. So I'm wondering if you could say more about this whole issue of spatiality and maybe give us an example or two from the chapter where you think that it really kind of illustrates um, how spatiality uh, is important for the larger cosmological meaning at work. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, I think, again, one of the most important themes of this chapter, as with all the others, is just simply putting things in context. So whether that's putting a text in the context of its, of its authorship and historical milieu, or putting a ritual in the context of its performance and performance space, um, or, you know, again, it's very obvious in the case of artistic examples, which we often see, you know, decontextualized in museums or in, in photo books and things like that, that things like murals originally were on a, on a wall in a monastery surrounded by other murals as part of a larger program and a larger way of thinking about uh, a space than the particular example that we happen to be considering. And so um, w the way I start that chapter is actually to go through, I think, uh, four different sort of scales or, or frames in which cosmological thinking can occur in, in architectural spaces and how that they complement each other, but they're not identical to each other. So if you think about uh, the ground plan of an architectural space, that can be laid out like a cosmos, which is, was famously how uh, the Samye Monastery, which was the first monastery in Tibet, uh, is understood. You can also think about the, the building structure itself and the hierarchical levels of the, the different floors of a building as being cosmological. Once you get inside the shrine space, I'm sorry, I forgot one. There's the um, the murals and decorations, which uh, have a program as you move through a space, you start with certain kinds of murals on the outside of a building, and you move on to different kinds of murals on the inside of a building. And then once you enter a shrine space, there can be notions of space there. So I have a, a, a section where I talk about the altar and especially tiered uh, altars that have a hierarchical arrangement of offerings, um, basically replicating the cosmology of the offering cosmos from, from chapter three. And so all of those use cosmological thinking, but it's not 
enough to just say, well, architecture replicates the cosmos because, for example, the cosmology of the altar, which replicates the offering cosmology, um, is actually different and distinct from the cosmos of the ground plan, for example, at Samye, which represents more the sort of Abhidharma cosmology of the various continents and their sort of geographic relationships. So we need to think of all of these different things in their own particular context and as they relate to larger wholes. And one of the other key distinctions that I make in that um, chapter is between uh, the inter interior spaces and exterior or threshold spaces that, that divide the interior and exterior. And when we find images of the cosmos, the geographic cosmos in murals, um, frequently these are just identified as depictions of the cosmos. But there are key distinctions, for example, if a, if a image of the cosmos appears at a threshold, it's very often replicating the offering cosmos or a kind of uh, introduction to the space. It may often, it may also represent the Abhidharma as a sort of introduction to Buddhist cosmology. But in interior spaces, we get other kinds of images of the cosmos, for example, related to mandalas, so like mandala meditations, or related to narrative stories and things like that. So even just moving through a space, you can see several different kinds of images of the cosmos that are really determined by or, or fit to the kinds of spaces that they're in. That's wonderful. And, you know, it really, you do a great job of, of taking, um, you know, uh, art, historical elements off the pedestal of a kind of like sanitized museum perspective where they're looked at kind of in isolation and instead bringing them into relationship with um, with human experience and human subjects because ultimately temples are, you know, uh, traversed by human beings and used spaces that are used in certain ways. And so this is really a great chapter that I highly recommend to, to all the readers. Um, I would like to move into the conclusion actually now, um, where I think it kind of wraps up uh, a lot of the themes that we've already been really speaking about throughout our conversation. Um, but what I'd like to have you maybe touch on is this distinction you draw in the conclusion um, between, on the one hand, what you call thinking about cosmology, and on the other hand, what you call thinking with cosmology uh, as a mode of cognition, something you've already evoked a few times now. So maybe tell us in these final moments, uh, what, what do you mean by cosmology as a mode of cognition and what it might look like to um, think cosmologically, so to speak? Uh, yeah, so this is exactly, exactly one of the key distinctions of, of the book, not thinking of cosmology as a a subject of scholarly inquiry uh, as a you know subfield of Buddhist studies, for example, um, but as uh, cosmology as um, a set of tools that can be used by many different kinds of people in different kinds of ways uh, to think um, spatially about whatever they happen to need to think about. So, um, you know, again, thinking of an example completely outside of Buddhist traditions, people may be familiar with the idea of like a memory palace or something like that, where you use an imagined picture of a, a space and different rooms and different objects in those rooms to uh, help your memory and, and memorize different kinds of content or uh, tell a story or things like that. That's using a specific conception of space for a, basically a non-spatial purpose, right? You're, you're mapping a set of ideas onto a space in order to have some other kind of result. Um, and that's really what I see happening 
uh, with Buddhist cosmology is, of course, people have always been interested in what the outside world is like and how we can describe it and, and things like that. But when you really look at all of these different examples of um, texts and rituals and paintings and architecture in Buddhist tradition, um, very few of them are just sort of abstractly, objectively interested in the exterior world for its own sake and no other purpose. There's always some other uh, purpose related to the human self and and whether it's you know the proper attitude one should have in an offering ritual or the transformations of enlightenment it's using cosmological thinking as as a as a tool as a framework for accomplishing some other kind of goal and i think that's you know hopefully the the kind of understanding that we can move forward um, with in the realm of Buddhist studies and thinking about good Buddhist cosmology is um, not necessarily that it's the only tool. Again, there's, you know, there's uh, poetics and narrative and all kinds of other tools that people use to think through these concepts. But also that cosmology is not just a sort of, you know, esoteric subfield. It's, it's a foundation for thinking through things that needs to be um, considered. Yeah, and I think this is something you you do so well uh, throughout this book, and including in the in the conclusion. Um, and you know, I could ask you a million more questions, but I do want to uh, watch the time and just ask you as we're kind of wrapping things up: Is there anything that we didn't have the chance to talk about that you would like to maybe mention to the listeners? Um, I mean, I think, you know, you've done a great job of, of uh, you know, thinking through the, the key issues that were at stake in a lot of these chapters. And, um, you know, the, the only thing that, you know, I have to add is sort of the thing, the last thing that I say in the book, which is that, uh, you know, these are just examples uh, of, of all of the different kinds of things that, that cosmology can do in religion and, and a few of the ways that it can be approached uh, um, through by scholars through studying ritual and text and all of that. And, um, you know, I just hope other people uh, are, are interested in the topic enough to go out and, and look for more uh, ways that these things can be understood and more different kinds of interesting examples. And I will you know, pay attention to the field uh, to see what I can learn from other people as well. Wonderful. I mean, I think listeners will agree, and I certainly feel that this book was extremely rich and uh, very thought-provoking. And I will definitely be eagerly following your next books and projects, you know. So for our very last question, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what uh, what do you plan to do next? What sort of maybe new book ideas or new projects are uh, inspiring you at the moment? Uh, sure. Well, you, I think one of the sort of themes that you started the interview with was relationships between image and text and things like that. And uh, like some of the other things I've talked about, that's a, a key sort of thematic interest for me across different projects. And so um, I'm working on a, on a project now that sort of um, interrogates the, the nature of visual representations in Buddhism. Uh, how how an, how an image represents its subject and how that relates to um, textual descriptions of that and how images can be um, tied uh, sort of indirectly to um, philosophical arguments and um, other kinds of things. I think one of the basic questions that I ask in my research is to take a, kinds of questions that have typically been asked of texts, like what is the Buddhist cosmos like, and just ask that not only of text, but also of other sources. So of ritual and art and things like that. And um, so I'm working on a project that, that tries to do that again in a, in a very different sort of realm, I think. 
Well, uh, it's very exciting and I can't wait for it to come out and have you back on the podcast to tell us more about that project when it's ready. <laughs> Great. I look forward to it. Thank you. Yeah. So Eric Huntington, thank you so much for this tremendous book and a wonderful conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And thank you also to our listeners. You've been listening to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Thank you for listening and please join us next time. <laughs>